The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I am Reagan Kelly, and I am joined this week by my fine co-host. Laura Nash, ready to talk about medieval murder mysteries! <laughs> Laura, I knew this was going to be your game. Actually, <laughs> you, you knew this was going to be your game, and yes. you convinced me to play it, and I'm so glad that you did. I was basically like, hello, would anybody like to read my tract about medievalist literature? And our other co-host said, Mm, I'm kind of busy. <laughs> so thank you for, for joining me. I'm Pentiment looked like my jam. So often things look like my jam and then they're not well-made games. I was thrilled that this is my jam and a good game. Yeah, this was my jam in, in many ways. Um, so just to set it up briefly and then maybe we can backtrack a little bit and talk mm-hmm. about um, like why we were so drawn to this, but... The, the, the very quick pitch on Pentiment, if you haven't happened to have seen it, um, is uh, that this is a sort of narrative adventure game, uh, so 2D um, presentation. We'll talk about the art style in a minute, but hoo boy. Um, mm. And uh, it's a story about a, uh, a series of murders in a small Bavarian Alpine town. Uh, in the 1500s, this is a an abbey town, a town where there is, you know, a, a up on a high hill, there's a there's a abbey full of monks with a scriptorium doing what monks do, um, praying and whatnot. And then, of course, there's a, a town that uh, is uh, related to and supports that. And uh, you play as Andreas Mahler, a uh, not a monk. He is a, uh, a sort of uh, traveling artist who is working on his masterpiece trying to become a, a master in, in his guild system or what have you uh, in Nuremberg and he's come to the abbey to work uh, and uh, that's the setup is that you it's a, a a murder occurs and you become embroiled in the uh, in the murder investigation yes and this is a game that's been praised for its art its fonts its um oddity i think i was really attracted because they said i mean let's be real someone said the two inspirations for this game were night in the woods and umberto echoes name of the rose and i said well that's weird as hell sign me up it's too and every neuron in my brain lit up when i heard that phrase that this was name of the rose meets night in the woods yeah um it's like don't even know what that is don't know what the balance is but like i have to try it like i'm legally have you read name of the rose i have read name of the rose so i read it too i think i read it in college um was just you know what i was looking for something uh light reading Uh, a doorstop it's actually great it's a wonderful book i don't know you know if our listeners are out there and have not read name of the rose by umberto echo it's like one of the greatest mystery novels of all time but it's also way more than a mystery novel. You like, like fall into it. Like it's it's one of those books where the narrative does something odd to your brain and mm-hmm. you kind of like lose yourself in the language and the mystery is like a side part of it. The um the way that I would – I've explained it to people when I recommended the book to them before is that like if you liked 
Game of Thrones. And if what you liked about Game of Thrones was it's incredibly well-realized world with, you know, deep, incredible backstory and like lots of details about the way that people live on a very like granular level, like just really interesting details about a world that is slight like but slightly different than your own. And well, maybe if you that- really liked college semiotics class. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Um, and 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 like discussion of of like interpretation of the Bible. Um, it, but like that. But what if it was the real world? It's like the real the real um, world of uh, you know. In, in that case, I think it's like thirteen hundreds, thirteen twenties. I don't remember. Yeah, and I don't even remember where in the world it's set now. But um, Italy, <laughs> Italy ish. Yeah, I, I, um, I remember nothing about the murder mystery. I remember the vibe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's been many years since I read it, but it's it's like it's this incredibly vivid window into the past in a way that really makes you think about like, well, the people in the past were just people and they were living in this incredibly different, not just a different world in terms of like, well, they don't have cars back then, but like a different world in terms of like the the mental space you inhabit when you live in a world where it is so like, you know, life is short, um, you know, Things like infant mortality are insanely high. The 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 idea then that like our you know our veil of tears, our life is just a, a you know a transient place that we are between you know between here and the side of God and this uh, it, it's like it's a strange world, but it was very real to these people, um, and it's. Uh, it's like, it's a different, it's a different headspace to put yourself into. And it's really, it's, it's a really interesting story. And this is an incredible, it's not an adaptation of name of the Rose, but it's almost as close as you can get. It's like, it's very similar in terms of it's a, it's a murder mystery. It's set in an abbey. It's set in the middle ages, much more Um, straightforward for those who are hoping for, I mean, there's plenty of weird references, but it's not quite as weird. mm -hmm. It's not as obtuse. There are well, many, many references, but yeah, and it, they're it does, not. It has a, an in, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but it has an in-game glossary. So there's, you know, the, it, it, the game feels free to throw, you know, proper nouns that you may not be familiar with at you, um, but it will underline them and give you a star on them in the glossary that you can look them up in the menus. So, And like, you don't have to look them up if you don't want to. Yeah, very true. I, I only like kind of skimmed that every now and then. Um, but yeah, the, the things that, so um Maybe we should set up the um, the actual game. Well, what 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 else is there to say about it before we dive into talking about the way that it plays and looks? So one of my favorite things in gaming, yes, that's hyperbole, but it's true, is when people who don't normally play games completely lose their mind over games. And this has been an excellent version of that. And I think that's because this game has a really strong narrative structure. It's got the murder mystery. It's got a lot of curb appeal. Like I, I think this is curb appeal is a good way to put it. It's yeah. like you can you can look at one frame of this game and be like, I've never seen a game that looked quite like that before. It looks like a medieval manuscript, and you're either gonna be down with that or you're gonna be like, um, I'm allergic to this. Please get it away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to think medieval manuscripts are absolutely hilarious and beautiful. Um, my mom when I was in like you know, nine, like maybe in third grade or fourth grade, brought me a planner from the Metropolitan Museum of Art that was books of hours illustrations. And I was oh. like, everybody else had like Dora. I mean, it wasn't Dora, but because of the time period, but it was, you know, cartoons. And I was rocking this like medieval manuscript um, 
planner from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I was in on the art style, but there's more than that. So I, I just want to try to like describe a little more of the vibe before we get into the story, because I think mm. it's it's important to think about this game as like unclassifiable, but clearly full of hooks. Because there's not a lot of games that you can just easily give to somebody who doesn't play a lot of games and they're fine. And this, I think, is one of them. I think that's true. Yeah. Something that I um, I, I wanted to... I heard a really good interview with the um, the lead developer or, or director on this game. Um, he went on Waypoint Radio and talked a little bit about how this game came about. And um, uh, one of the things he was talking about... So we haven't mentioned this is a game from a really big studio that's been around for ages called obsidian entertainment and the lead designer on this the developer josh sawyer is basically a lifer at obsidian entertainment he uh he was a designer on icewind dale uh, a famous rpg out of there that came out in the year 2000 and he has been there ever since um he was, for example, the director on Fallout New Vegas and all of its various DLCs. He was the director and lead designer on Pillars of Eternity and Pillars of Eternity 2. Um, and that's like a really, this is a really, really weird swerve for him. But he talked on the on the uh, the podcast that I listened to him on, and I would recommend going and listening to that episode of Waypoint Radio. It's been a few weeks now um, uh, about that, you know, he was... Uh, you know, he, he basically studied this stuff in college. It's like clear that like this was something like that was like a lifelong passion for him. Um, he's been wanting to make this game in some form for many years. Previously, he had, you know, envisioned as an RPG, but it kind of shifted to being this. Um, and this is obviously a really, really weird thing to come out of Obsidian. Um, I guess, you know, if you've been there forever and you've been the, the lead director on a ton of games, you can just sort of like get your passion project made at some point after you've put in, you know, 20 some odd years uh, in the trenches. Um, but also this was a game that that was pitched almost immediately following Obsidian Entertainment's being acquired by uh, Microsoft and Xbox Game Studios. And I think that's really, really interesting. I had, um, I, you know, I, I, I was, I've always been a little bit nervous since Game Pass became a thing. I've been a mm-hmm. little nervous about um, what it meant for the industry. And like one great game coming out that's like a Game Pass exclusive and funded by Microsoft does not necessarily like set my mind at ease. But this does give me a little bit of hope for there being taste at Microsoft and in that whole studio machine. Because... You know, Obsidian, famous developer of RPGs, gets mm-hmm. acquired by Microsoft. Fame, you know, the they were clearly buying the Fallout New Vegas studio, right? Right. That's who they were buying here. Um, and the first thing, or practically the first thing that they pitch to Microsoft as like this is the thing we're going to do next is not an RPG. It is a small team. It is a 2D adventure mystery game set in the Middle Ages, just absolutely drenched in literary and biblical references. Historical, allegorical, symbolism, astrology. Yeah, it's just... Alchemy. This is such a weird niche game. This is a game where if you described it to any publisher, they would run screaming from the room because it is unmarketable. But if you put it with a hundred other games, 
and it looks cool, people might just download and try it. So I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, this is good. This actually like it's great. It, this is this is a clear win uh, for the gaming public that this thing got made. And you know, uh, Josh Sawyer said this would never have been made without Game Pass. Mm-hmm. And so this this is something that like, he would never even have pitched it without Game Pass. The the knowledge that this was a game that they would they would know they would get a certain amount of money for, so they could say like we're going to scope with this size of team and this set of features, and we're going to get a and. A out from Microsoft. It opens like a Game Pass game in that it opens with a weird dream sequence in the artist's mind with like Prester John and a weird um the saint of curse language, Saint Grobane. Like it's Grobane, not a real yeah. saint. Like a weird fool. Well, it's not because I don't know. I don't know saints. I was like, that sounds sounds like a real saint. It's to like me. the sure, saint of vulgarity, and I think it was made up in medieval times. Like that little oh, man okay, shows up a lot of things, manuscripts, okay. and like uh, an actual saint. And there's just these people, and Beatrice is on a balcony, and it's weird. And then there's a like bunch of people falling on a ship, and this odd dream sequence starts the game off. So you're like, okay, I'm in with this weird medieval stuff, and then it wakes up in the bed and you're in a house. And I was like, this is how you start a Game Pass game. You tell people there's going to be weirdness, but there's also going to be normal stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's such a good, um, it's a like a Netflix-y opening where someone could hop to the next movie any second. Yeah, like, that's, that's what point. the beginning yeah, feels like. Yeah, it definitely like. has that. And, um, and it, we've already talked about the the art but like i do have to just reemphasize like how incredibly gorgeous this is it's it's pulling both from medieval illustrated manuscripts and also from like woodcut block printing style yeah. illustrations of the time yeah um, hannah kennedy loved the art style so i want to give props to that and also like drawing from a lot of different medieval uh drawings like different styles like there's germanic stuff there's stuff from italian there is at some point they show an ethiopian bible uh, if you Mm. do a certain thing and it's absolutely beautiful um there's just a lot of references there's um marginalia which are all the weird animals sitting around love that yeah so at, at any point you can pause the game and um, so, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the plot and how it works. But obviously, a big part of this is sort of investigating a murder. And you do mm-hmm. have a kind of a loose quest log that's done almost sort of in the style of like a handwritten journal. I mean, um, you're an artist. It makes sense. Right. Yeah. And at any point, you can pause the game and it kind of zooms out into a, a view where, you you know, the, the window that you were playing is like an illustration in this larger book. Um, and you can then turn the pages of the book and see your kind of quest log, which is very physical. It's a book with little tabs in it and handwritten notes that are time, you know, that are date stamped. So you can see, you know, like a, a, a little like log of what you've been up to and what you're, you know, what you have that you could potentially do next. And also there's illustrated uh, maps in there, but also it, you can flip over to a glossary or a, uh, you know, a listing of all of the people that you've met with illustrations of their faces and some notes about who they are. All of this super, super helpful because this is a game with a really large cast. It takes place across 25 years, mm-hmm. huge span of time for, and you know, it's, it's done in acts. So there's sort of time skips, but you know, between like the first act and the second, I think there's like seven or nine years or something like that. Um, and, uh, so having this incredibly great, uh, like book style menu interface where you can not just go and see like a quest log, like an RPG, but really like a journal that will recap for you what you were doing and thinking. 
um, notes about every character, and then the incredible glossary that is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words that are used in the game defined. It's it's so great, and it's so fun to flip through it. Uh, This game has a lot of text in it. It's a very narrative-heavy game, but what I found super interesting is um, I think this game... Sorry for people who love voice acting. I think this game would have been really painful had it been mm. voice acted. There's a lot of text. There's a lot of text. And I think what it was really smart about is because it's uh, the main character, you're playing a character who is an artist and a person who makes books, writes and script. Um, everyone who talks to you has um, one of a certain, like their dialect, their um demeanor, their attitude is communicated by the way the letters are animated on screen. Um, Some are in a very gothic high font. Some people speak very deliberately and you see the outlines of the words and they get filled in. Other people speak very quickly and the words show up quickly and there's a lot of uh, typos basically that get erased and redrawn. Um, Every time someone refers to God or Jesus Christ, it's in red, like the old timey Bibles. Like, and you see it drawn in last. So it's like they'll last. write out the sentence, but leave out the word Lord or God or Jesus, and then goes back afterwards with red ink to write those words in. Which is hilarious when the characters who don't really believe in God are cussing about God and like it gets drawn in afterwards. It's just like a mwah, icing on the punctuation. So I I wanted to say that like I um I usually hate uh, timed text in almost every context. I did turn um, the speed up. I turned the speed all the way up to the max and it was mm-hmm. still not fast enough for me. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of timed text in general. They they were doing it for a very good reason here. But like, you know, ask anybody in the interactive fiction scene, timed text is like a widely unpopular thing. And um, I think it bothers a lot of people, fast readers especially. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm not, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm no like, um, uh, you know, uh, robot or scanning machine or anything, but like I'm a pretty fast reader. And so this, even the fastest setting for the fast tech for the the text here was a little too slow for me, but I think it was worth it here because they were doing a lot of their conveying of character with personality. Yeah. yeah. Like personality with text styling. Um, So, uh, you know, Laura mentioned that you know, Andreas Mahler, our lead character, he starts as a young artist trying to prove himself. He's dropped out of medical school. Well, and- depending on oh, right, I'm sorry. Depending this, on your answers, he's dropped right. out of mur- 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 school. That's true. I forgot. He dropped out of something and decided to become an artist. Um, and um, he writes in uh, what the uh, designer described as a humanist script, which I'm not a, a historical typeface nerd enough to describe what that means exactly. But like, um, uh, it's a very readable uh, sort of uh, print type of script, uh, type of writing. He's not like doing a lot of fancy loops or anything. It's a kind of handwritten um Secular. It's a secular style of writing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's how he writes. Um but other characters write very differently. So like the the more, more religious characters write in fancier, more like illustrated manuscript looking, uh, looking writing. The like peasant characters write or speak in, uh, you know, more handwritten kind of scratchy and different characters have different error rates. So sometimes as they're as you're speaking, you will see like typos essentially appear in people's speaking. 
and um, then they'll get scratched or sort of erased out and and rewritten. Um, and according to the the designer, like each character has like an error rate that's based on that's like a it's like a characteristic of their of their character. So like some of the characters that are like either sloppier speakers or are less well educated will have more errors in their uh, in their speaking. And there's the family. Uh, it took me a while to realize it was the printer family that it, it mm. their their text appears upside down in like block letters and then flips over like as if they're yeah, speaking and when in print. they speak they rather than you know as as people speak you hear the sound of like a quill on on mm-hmm. uh, parchment but they uh it sounds like a like a printing press going every time they speak i was always Great glad sound. when they were on screen because uh their text wasn't slow oh no their text <laughs> goes pretty fast because it's because which makes sense. They don't, you have to wait for the person to write, which is yeah, part of the, the plot. I think the Druckers—they're great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I—I uh, I really liked that text effect, um, and it's clearly like something they put a lot of effort and and thought into. Like there's. It was there were constantly little ways that they would tweak it too. Like you know, a new character would come in, maybe uh, like a character who speaks Italian, for example. And depending on whether your character speaks Italian, either you just see their handwritten Italian, or writes out the Italian, then rubs it out and rewrites English in a smaller font in the in in between the kind of half erased Italian lines, that kind of thing. My favorite yeah. moment of text was when you're talking to a. Uh, like a shepherd uh, till and you are having, if you engage a conversation uh, you learn that till uh, is able to read and has read most of the books at the Abbey. And as he's telling the story about how educated the, the typeface changes to a more elegant font, like as if, yes. as, as Till is talking about his academia, the word like he's dropping the peasantness from the voice, and you can't unhear it. Like you could hear the scholar mm. this man could be, and the text updates. So I love a living text, and I I think I also was like I would love it just like twenty five percent faster. But I, I know. but there's I don't think I would have noticed all of the bits had I been speeding up. I don't think I would have clocked all these little personality quirks. So I get it. It it made me slow down. It was probably good for me that it did so. Yeah, I um I still would have liked it faster, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, while we're on the topic of little sliders in the menus, like the text speed slider, I wanted to call I don't know where else to put this in the episode, but I wanted to call out this has the most incredible settings slider that I have ever seen in I mean almost ever. Did you, Laura, did you mess with the head size slider? I saw that it offered something called a big head mode. And then I was like, no, moving on. 90s kids will appreciate a big head mode. Back in the day, all the good games had a big head mode. Usually you'd enter a cheat code and then, you know, your basketball players would all have gigantic bobbleheads or whatever. Um, I remember this being in, I'm pretty sure, like the Tony Hawk Pro Skater games. And like there were a lot of games back then that had a big head mode. It was kind of a thing. Um, And now it's kind of just like a jokey thing that some game developers will include. Here, they don't have a big head mode cheat code. They have a head size slider in the menus with six stops on it between normal size and huge. And And what did you choose? Actually, I ended up using kind of the middle because what's incredible about this is like this is a game where, you know, you've got big scenes 
Um, characters, I, I actually adjusted it up and down occasionally, and I didn't play the whole game with it turned on, but significant chunks of the game I played it turned on. I'll talk about like the um, ways I play this game later because this is the first game that I played a significant chunk of, like most of this game using Xbox's game streaming, cloud streaming service. Um, so I was playing on a variety of different screen sizes, and when I was playing this game on smaller screens, the heads on these illustrated characters are quite small. And they do a lot of work on the expressions, like the, mm-hmm. um, especially the, the major characters will have a lot of different expressions and they're all very nicely illustrated. And so I turned that big head mode slider up to about 50% and they didn't look totally unnatural, but the heads were bigger and I could I, see their expressions better. If I wasn't playing on the projector, like I could, would need that yes but the funniest because i got so much out of it the funniest thing about the head mode slide yeah it also applies to every animal in the game <gasps> so oh my gosh all the pigs and ducks and, and rabbits the cats and the and dogs you pet have dogs. giant heads oh my gosh have giant heads <laughs> it was so funny oh my god it's like the um there was a hairpin series of like two medieval monks trying to illustrate things i've never seen and they were just like that's a lion, right? It's like, yep, sure. You know, and it, it looks, it's like a mouse with a fur hat on. <laughs> Go for it. Like, sure. yeah. The like, pigs in a- this are hysterical looking. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, like, medieval illustrators would know what a pig looked like. But let's be honest, pigs are hard to draw. And the, the pigs in this are hysterical looking. And when you give them big heads, they're even funnier. So. The big head mode slider, like big props from me. I don't know what an implementation nightmare it was to make every head in the game increase in size. Um, but like even at about 50% size, like they still mostly fit on their heads. There was a warning in the menu that said like things may not look right if you use the big head mode slider. Mostly they looked fine. Occasionally people's heads would overlap on things. Whatever. It looked great. I loved it. So let's see. Should we talk a little more? We're going to be careful about spoilers because this is a game about a mystery or series of mysteries. Yes, we've been talking about everything but the plot of this game other than saying we liked it because it's hard to – it's very hard to talk about narrative games without spoiling them. Mm -hmm. I will say though, um, City I've known for RPGs. These have a lot of interesting choices at the beginning of the game that affect – your character in ways mm-hmm. I was not expecting. I think that's safe to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of like choice and, and dialogue system. And yeah, that, that's quite neat. Yeah. So you start off and early on in a conversation, um, you get to choose um, basic kind of core attributes. Like, are you a hedonist craftsman, bookworm, rapscallion businessman? Um, you get to choose, uh, you left university, but what were you studying there, and what was your secondary specialty? Yeah, I have the uh, I have a screenshot of of one of those choices where you can mm-hmm. choose between um, Latinist, logician, orator, occultist, and heavens and earth. And I don't remember what all of the different options specifically address, but like I think I ended up choosing orator, which it, all of these options basically give you little extra um, dialogue choices. Orator mm-hmm. gave me like you know. I don't know, special, uh, extra convincing or sometimes extra convincing, uh, like, you know, impassioned speech type of dialogue options. Uh, I would have, I would have liked to have chosen a cultist. I just thought that would, I <laughs> think I, I, I kind of assumed you'd useful. pick a cultist. So I picked uh logician and, 
Um, I also had a medicinal background and a nature, like nature lover, botanist plants, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if this was true for you, but as I wandered through every plant I saw, I would be like, that is this plant. And it is interesting that it grows here. Like I I got a lot of that too. I think it was the, I'm not sure if all of that was the medicine background, but yeah. um, Yeah. Um, I liked the system. Uh, What I think is particularly cool about it though, is that while the while choosing those options does open up additional dialogue choices, um, it, I don't think it really locks you out of anything. You're not forced to choose them at any point. So I, yeah. I had a hedonist background, but I could choose when to flirt and be a weirdo creep, um, including when I wondered. Did you did you stumble across the two village women in the waterfall naked? No, dang. So. I don't know why, but on the last day I was trying to investigate the murder and I like was, it was, I was supposed to be eating lunch and I was like running around doing all these errands instead. Yeah. I think I didn't even like find my way to the waterfall until act two. So I I went all the way down to the waterfall and like for like two of the the daughters of the town were were bathing naked in the waterfall. And because I was a hedonist, I could have been a super creep to them, (laughs) but you can choose not to. So I said like something flirty. And then they said, don't be a creep. And then I was like, no, no, it's okay. I'll avert my eyes. So let you get out of the water. <laughs> Put your clothes on. And then I next saw them at the Abbey for the the murder mystery reveal. And I was like, you two, I know what you've been doing <laughs> literally 10 minutes ago. Well, a lot of the uh, the like little pits of this game that I loved are, are like moments like that where you're, you're seeing the like, you know, like – you're seeing people who have like this like religious life or who live these like hard scrabble lives of, of toil, but like you get to see them like, what, what, how did, how did medieval people have fun? Mm -hmm. How did they have sex? How did they flirt? All, you know, they're real people and living real lives, despite living in a world that is like conceptually different than the one that we live in. It's, I don't know. I thought it was really cool. There were other, other things in this, in the, like, uh, discovering people's secrets and things that were, that were quite fun. Yeah. And and that felt very night in the woods, right? I just Mm -hmm. happened, like there was no reason in the script for me to go down there. I was just getting desperate to find some extra something before time ran out. And I was wandering around every place I hadn't been. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a very night in the woods. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of the um the like running out of time, that's mm-hmm. the other thing about this that also is very night in the woods. There's other games that have I I don't know why, but I'm constantly reminded of uh, the Persona games with this. Mm. In that, like this, um, the mystery uh, solving is all based on sort of a clock. Um, so you know something goes down, like a murder happens, and um, you have a certain deadline for when you have to figure out what's going on. So maybe you have like three days. And each day is broken up into different chunks. So there's like a morning. So it has Uh, the canonical hours. Exactly. Yeah. Um, The uh, Uh, which is nice because you're making a book of hours. Like that is your mm -hmm. masterpiece. So it's nice that your day is is a book of hours, basically. But uh, yeah, in a circle. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's a a big wheel. uh, Yeah, it's it's beautiful, like illustrated kind of clock type of thing, and um, uh, with the with the monastic hours and um. So you're it's telling time in that very old fashioned kind of way, but it also really helps that like it, it it's using that as a mechanic. So you have the morning working hours, and that means you can go out and talk to people. Um, but generally, there will be some big thing that you can choose to do 
that's going to advance the clock. So like you can go and talk to everybody in town, but you might have three or four different people who say like, Hey, yeah, let's, let's go have a, uh, have a beer together or let's go hunt together. Or you can come help me around the house. And, uh, and you know, those are, are different things that you can do that will advance the clock and kind of end that phase of the game. Um, but each of them, you're kind of choosing between them to see which of them is going to give you the lead that you need to continue your investigation. And that's something I wish I knew before I started playing because I, I think in early, it, it's actually fine. I don't regret it. But earlier in the game, I could have spent more time. I didn't realize that once I you know, ate lunch, that the lunch hour would end. I didn't realize mm. I could also talk to people during lunch. And just hang out for a while before I ate. Um, there, they warn you a couple times, like you're doing something at night and it's going to mess up your sleep schedule. But I, I, I wish I had known that you can do a fair amount of talking, and it will be clear if you're going to be doing a long assignment yeah. or not. Yeah. So I believe Night in the Woods had the same thing. Um, I know that like the Persona games have a similar kind of approach. Um, and lots of other games, I think, do this. Um, but it, it works well here. But it, it does kind of like it hints at you, but it's it's not like putting up UI in your face. Mm-hmm. So the characters will say something like, um, do you want to do this? It's going to take a while. And you're just meant to understand like when they say it's going to take a while, that means that by the time that this scene that i'm prompting to to begin by the time that scene is over compline or whatever the name of the particular monastic hour you're in is going to be over and you're going to be moving on either to bedtime or whatever mm-hmm. um i still i had some similar trouble to you laura in that like i um i didn't uh i didn't quite grok that early on yeah I'd say like the first like, half of the first act mm-hmm. and i probably missed some stuff because of it and i will say that i was an absolute dog shit investigator for <laughs> the first i murder. really want to compare investigations with you because i i do too i do too um but yeah, like absolute dog shit. Like um, one of the things I didn't about even this- investigate one person because I didn't want to accuse them. So I learned I nothing Me about too. them. <laughs> Me too. Um, uh, yeah. One of the things about this is that like this game does not. Uh, I don't think this is a spoiler to say, and it's also in the first paragraph of the Wikipedia. So if it's a spoiler, it's a spoiler. Um, it, this is a game that does not reveal to you canonically who the murderer was in any of these given murders. Um, You have a choice between a number of likely candidates, but it's not like you can do DNA tests on evidence here because Uh it's 1530 or something. Um, You have to kind of decide either based on the evidence that you uncover and what seems likeliest to you, or based on just who you think is most worthy of being punished. Um, Because there will in every case, so I, I believe in every case, there's multiple people that are potentially the the criminal, the the murderer. Um, I'm not sure the game has an opinion about which of them is the one to go with. Like, I think it's kind of just like you can pick yours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there is sort of a, a background conspiracy going on across all of this. So the game does have a sort of an overarching. Um, narrative and overarching uh, mystery to it. But uh, in each of the specific murders, uh, you get a, you get to sort of decide, well, uh, do I want to accuse the young nun? Um, there's some good evidence that she did it. She has a bloody shovel, for example. Uh, but 
do I really want to, uh, do I really want to accuse her? Because, you know, she seems nice. <laughs> like that kind of thing. Uh, versus like, well, I have a little less evidence against you know, the Miller, but he's an asshole. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a really nice blend of um, knowing a person is bad and also that they're good for you. Like, I, I really like the moral ambiguity of this game yeah, where you can... So. I mean, people have hard lives. People hate the church and their taxes and people have strong feelings and you're like, yeah, everyone's right. What a game. Everybody's right. (laughs) Well, not everybody. The Baron is pretty terrible and kind of deserved to get got, um, but didn't deserve to get got in a way that, um, your friend takes the fall, which is why, um, that I I don't consider that a spoiler, but that's yeah, why you're about, incentivized. Yeah, brought, let's let's actually should, talk about the let's that talk about part. the setup. Yeah, so the the beginning of the game we mentioned you're playing as Andreas Mahler. He is a, a journeyman um, uh, artist who is working on his masterpiece in order to become a, a master in his his guild, uh, and he's come to Kirsau Abbey, the Abbey in Tansing, this Alpine town, uh, one of the last remaining monastic uh, scriptorium in uh in bavaria uh, because even by this time printing presses have become a thing and monastic scriptoriums where you know monks copy out beautifully hand uh uh, hand illustrated uh you know religious texts and other other books uh that's that's out of fashion in the extreme um uh, but he's come to this place because he wants you know, a nice, quiet place to work. He wants to work alongside these talented monks um, who still make these beautiful books. Uh, and uh, he's been there for a while. He's working on his masterpiece. Um, and uh, into town comes a uh, a lord, um, uh, the Baron Rothvogel. Is Baron right? I think Baron Rothvogel. Mm-hmm. And, Redford. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and he seems like a uh, he seems like kind of a jerk at first, um, and maybe also at second and third. He's a uh, he's a uh, he's interested in you because he's a patron of the arts, and he's come actually to uh, check on a commission that he made uh, for an illustrated manuscript, one that is behind schedule, uh, and. Um, but he's also got a lot of uh, you know offensive ideas. He's interested in Lutheran ideology, which is fairly new at this point. Um, you know, starts talking about the the uh, articles of of Martin Luther with the with the Catholic uh, priests and everything. Sure to be a you know popular. And uh, after uh, he's kind of made an ass of himself at a big dinner, he's murdered. Um, and uh, you know. The, the the specifics of the murder don't add up. A, an elderly priest, Brother Piero, your closest friend in the Abbey uh, and sort of father figure to you, uh, is discovered next to the body holding a knife uh, and, uh, you know, claims and it's very likely that he's not the the killer because he's, you know, he's an arthritic old man with no reason to kill the Baron. Mm. Um uh, he just came, says he yeah. came in and picked up the knife. He's not the murderer. He's just so nice. He's a nice man. He's the nicest guy. Um, but uh, you uh, get involved because you want to save your friend's life uh, because he's the uh, you know he's being accused of the murder. Um, it's expedient for them to try to 
have to, you know, they need to find a, a scapegoat for this Lord's murder uh, or before the Lord of the, of the region comes and and shuts down the Abbey and scriptorium um, because he's itching for an excuse to do so. And, and the murder of a noble would be just such an excuse. So they've got all this incentive to find the murderer quickly. And even if that means accusing brother Piero of a crime, he didn't commit and you, uh, you love your buddy and you want him to uh, not you get beheaded. And so uh, you are investigating that murder by talking to everybody in town and trying to find out who might have had reason to kill the Baron. And turns out almost everybody. <laughs> so many people have reasons to kill the Baron, including people you can't accuse. And I was like, this person has every right to kill the Baron, but they're not on the list of five people. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the setup for the initial murder. Um, the investigation has that sort of format that we talked about, the sort of day-night cycle and going and talking to people. Before the murder, did you get the I'm a special boy pen from the Baron? <laughs> what do you mean? So if you've if you've managed to convince the Baron, like get the Baron's um, uh, favor, like you can talk to the his um, – like his horsemen guard and they will give you a pin like a special pin then i i made the mistake of like i got it and i had choice of like i'm gonna put it on right now and i said i'm gonna put it on my nicest cloak at home and then i put it in my pocket and then i like could find no way for love or money like once he died i really wanted to put that thing on my chest and walk around being like i'm investigating this man's murder and then i found out like everything bad he did and i was like i'm really glad i stuck that in my pocket <laughs> never uh, wore it i no, got I his favor but never i think used i uh it. I think I kind of pissed him off. I forget exactly when, um, but like he's a, he's kind of an odious dude. You learn a lot about his, his history and so on. Before that. Yeah. I, he wanted to talk to me about trees and butterflies and I was happy about it. And then everyone was like, that man beat people to death. And I was like, Oh (laughs) yeah. In the very first scene, when you first meet the Baron, you know, he's making an effort to befriend you and he wants to talk to you about the things that you're interested in. Um, He's the one that you're talking to and is quizzing you about your your backstory where, you know, the scene when you get to make your choices about mm-hmm. like, well, where did I go to, what did I study in college and that kind of thing. And um, uh, and he's very interested in you. And also that's another like place where the, it does that like text shift thing, you know, mid conversation mm-hmm. when he, when, um, when uh, Andreas realizes that the Baron is an educated man, that's when it switches the Baron's text styling from I believe it's from the sort of um, stylized like lordly script yeah. to the same humanist script that Andreas speaks in. Yes. Um, so it pretty cool. Um, and uh, I, I thought this was a great hook. Like this mystery, I was all in. I was ready to investigate it. Mm-hmm. There's also an angle of there is a kind of conspiracy or something going on in the town of of Tansing. Um, that uh, Andreas refers to as the thread puller. Someone manipulated the Baron into being in the place where he got murdered. Uh, Who? We don't know. But they've been leaving mysterious notes in mysteriously colorful inks and written in an extremely ornate and difficult to accomplish book hand, special handwriting. um, That That does not fit anybody anybody at the Abbey, yes. Right. So where is that coming from? And that's the, the sort of longitudinal mystery that you're kind of investigating across the entire game even after you discover or just assign 
uh, a person. And this is where I think we'll talk about this if we mm-hmm. do spoilers, but I, I definitely had a theory about this and like ran over to confront the person and they just were like, hello. It's like, oh, okay. The game does not want me doing this right now. The game is like, focus on one mystery at a time, Laura. There's too many things going on. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 um, I kept expecting as well that like this, this like mystery, uh, especially during the first act, I was expecting that the mystery of the, like, who is the person writing these mysterious notes? I thought like, okay, I'll figure that out along with like, that's clearly the murderer, right? I'll figure that out along with the, um, the murder and you nope. don't. And that actually threw me off pretty significantly because like I kept pulling at random threads during the investigation of the first Uh, murder thinking like trying to like broaden my neck so like it can't be this person so you thought this was a failure of investigation rather than a narrative plot point in the game yeah i guess i was thinking that like so like like there there there's certain people that are um that are you know the clear suspects um, but none of them seem like the person who would be writing these ornate notes. Mm-hmm. And so I was, so early on in like in the first investigation, I was, I was ruling out people mentally, uh, that shouldn't have been ruled out because they were clear suspects. And I was like, so I ended up not going very deep on any of the different like plot threads mm. and kind of having to like guess. I don't remember if it was, I think, I think at the end I ended up with like only one or two people that I could potentially choose from. And I had really slim evidence against any of them. Um, I can't wait to talk about this because mm. I think I fully investigated three people and just mm. ignored the fourth entirely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I, I was, I, and I, part of it was wasted time and so on. I, kind of understood things a little better the farther I got into the game. But in that first murder, um, I didn't, I, like I said, shitty investigator. I just absolute crap at it. I think I was lucky that uh, the backgrounds I had chosen helped me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'll do a little spoiler break towards the end. Um, I will also just for the purpose of the spoiler break, say that like at this point I am very near the end of the game, but I have not actually finished it. Um, It's kind of like three main acts. Um, I'm getting close to the end of act three, but I've fully investigated the first two murders and haven't a hundred percent completed. I'm like near the end of the third. And I am in the middle of the second act. Um, that doesn't stop me from firmly believing I know who the third pillar is, but I have no evidence because I'm in the middle act two and it's twisty. Yeah. So, um, I am going to finish it. I just was, um, quite sick this week. And, um, as funny as it would be to try to play this game with a fever, like that sounds like a terrible time. So glad I didn't do that. It definitely required some focus. So I'll, I'll say that, um, before we do go to spoiler break, because I, I know we're going to want to, I did want to take a quick second and talk about like the ways that I played this. I kind of referenced mm-hmm. this earlier, but like this was kind of a new thing for me. So I, um, I've had a Game Pass subscription for a while, but only for the gaming PC. But I have the Game Pass Ultimate subscription because I, you know, I did the the thing where you can, you know, buy a bunch of uh, Game Pass or like, sorry, Xbox Gold credit and convert it. So I've got like a three year Game Pass credit that is just like, you know, like it su- super discounted. By the way, you can still do that. Still, really good idea. Um, but um, it was. Uh, I recently, like I, there were a bunch of discounts on the Xbox one S and I thought, well, why not? So I grabbed one of those and I started playing this on that and that was great. But then I, you know, that was in my upstairs TV. I wanted to play it downstairs. So I played it on the game streaming thing. I'd tried that before with 
Tunic. And Tunic is like the worst case scenario for Xbox's game streaming. So I'd kind of written it off. Tunic has all of these like visual effects that were just absolute nightmares. Things like the blur and like tilt shifting and stuff were like an absolute nightmare for whatever compression, video compression algorithm Xbox does for their game streaming. Everything looked absolutely smeary and weird and kind of just unreadable. And also hmm. it's this, it's like a Souls-like type of thing. You have to be like doing extra precise dodging and there's timing and stuff. And all of that stuff combined to make the experience of playing Tunic over Xbox's game streaming just immediately, obviously, apparently bad. It was like a really terrible experience. I was like, I wrote it off. I thought, I'm never doing that again. It sucked. Um, but just out of necessity, I tried it with this game and it was fantastic. Um, huh, well, th- yeah, this is a game like it's a perfect, perfect scenario for it. Like it doesn't require uh, like Twitch anything. It's, you know, think and read game. And most of the time things on screen are standing pretty still. And with the big head mode. <laughs> with the big head mode. So I played this I, and I kept switching devices. It was fantastic. I switched, you know, I played some on my Steam Deck. I played some on my iPad. I played some on my Mac in a Chrome tab during work. Don't tell my bosses. Um, I played, uh, on, uh, my Xbox and, and, you know, synced my save between all of them. And it was a really, really nice experience. And it made me reconsider. This is, this is a game that has made me reconsider a lot about game pass. Um, but like, I, I mean, I was always sort of like, wow, game pass is a good deal, but like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm much more pro on some of these other fringe benefits of it now. Like this was really great. So I just wanted to mention that because maybe you're like me and you tried uh, the game streaming thing for something like, I don't know, an FPS or something mm-hmm. and it didn't work for you. Well, like Xbox is starting to have a lot of nice narrative stuff. I would say something like maybe uh, like citizen sleeper also on. Uh, oh yeah. Pass. That would work great. It would for be this. incredible with the game streaming. You could play it on anything and, you know, switch devices and all that. So I think there's a lot of potential for it for that type of game. Um, give it a try for those sorts of things. Awesome. Bit of a sidetrack, but there we are. And while we've got a little bit of time, uh, before we go to spoiler break, uh, why don't we talk? A l- and it is just the two of us. So we've got a little, little extra time. Laura, what's making you happy this week? Well, I will save my effusive praise for Glass Onion till more people can watch it. It's on Netflix. Um, but I, the other thing that I recommended to my family over Thanksgiving that was like just the biggest home run I've ever seen was The Big Brunch on HBO Max. Uh, it is a cooking competition show hosted by Dan Levy. Uh, Sola, who we've praised on the podcast before, um, and uh, the guy who runs uh, Eleven Madison, so like an actual like restaurant tour. Sorry to that man that I forgot your name. You were very good. You're a very good host. Um, the three of them are judges on the show, and it's like the stick with it. The first one's going to feel like, oh man, there's a lot of packaged backstory about these chefs coming from, you know just trying to make their communities better. And like, they've got very um, touchy feely backgrounds. It might feel like a lot of overproduction, but this is the funniest cooking show I've ever seen. The hosts are absolutely hysterical. First of all, there is a bartender serving them drinks while the people are cooking. (laughs) There's just a bartender taking orders. Dan Levy's ordering really elaborate, like Clamata Bloody Marys. Sola is always ordering just whiskey (laughs) in a glass. (laughs) Like there's a full bartender. Um, They're just 
they're drinking, they are eating too much of the food and getting full and making fun of each other for it. Like, have you ever seen a cooking competition show where the hosts were like absolutely cracking each other up on camera? (laughs) Like, they're not usually funny. The judges are not funny. In this case, the judges were very, very good. They have a, a beautiful vibe. Um, Sola is like at some point, the Levin Madison guy turns to Sola and goes, "So, who do you think is the villain of the season?" And she goes, "I think we're the villains." <laughs> 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 and it's a show where like that is that is the vibe. Um, we watched, I think, three or four over Thanksgiving and then had a really long car trip home and watched the rest. And I texted that to my sister-in-law and was like, we watched the best of breast of of um, the big brunch when we got home. And she was like, we did too. <laughs> she's like, I also talked to my mom and she's watched two more episodes. So like, everybody just like, it was a thing we put on because everyone could agree on it. And then everyone wanted to finish the season when they got home. So I don't know. Bake Off apparently had a terrible season. This is another really warm cooking show where everyone likes each other and wants nice. each other to do their best. Where is the streaming again? This is on HBO Max, oh, of all places. Okay. Also, I like, they're increasingly... They like, I don't have HBO Max, so I don't really know what their catalog's like, but I wouldn't have expected, like, reality stuff on there. They have a reason. lot of reality stuff. They, they, they have a lot of reality TV that used to air in the UK. Like... The Doghouse, which is a UK show that they put on, or like the Great Pottery Throwdown was on it. Um, they also have, I mean, they have F Boy Island, which is not a warm and fuzzy show at all. Um, and they also have like weird one off stuff. Like they've got a flower arranging show and they've got a show where like people like groom dogs that's hmm. not good. So like hit or miss. Um, this had a prize of $300,000. So like, I guess that's what Dan Levy wanted to do. He's the producer. Definitely has shit creeps vibes. Like, I don't know. Someone said, this is a good thing to watch with your family over Thanksgiving. And we were tired. And I was like, let's watch this thing. And I was so glad it was good. Um, I did, My father-in-law did make a joke about like, where's the woke meter at? Because there were so many people with like, touching backstories he's like i feel like this is a very woke cooking show and i was like shush we're not having this fight over thanksgiving oh god (laughs) he was making a joke about it he is a very kind man but um, good okay yeah we were the antennas were up we were like "Uh uh-oh it was like no (laughs) he just um but uh well that's definitely a recommendation that people might be able to use over their christmas break uh, it is so easy to put on tv with your family like sometimes you just need them to shut the hell up And, like, having a bunch of chefs judging brunch food while drinking cocktails, like, what what else do you want with your family? Literally everyone likes to talk about food. That's a, like, an absolute truth that I have learned. And, like, guessing who's going home is a fun game to play and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, that's a great recommendation. Thank you, Laura. Yeah. Uh, My, uh, my, like, recommendation is going to be a bit more... uh, um, techie and maybe a little more special case, but I will, I will, uh, um, preface this by saying that I probably don't, I don't talk about it on this show very much, but like I have certain nerd areas and one of my persistent nerd interests has been home automation forever, basically since I became a homeowner. Um, 
And um, I, I love doing like home automation stuff. I love like, you know, setting up all of my lights on smart switches and, you know, deciding about automation and schedules for them and things like that. And um, I've, I've, I've generally settled on because I'm an Apple guy. I've generally settled on like the the HomeKit stuff, although I have some Alexas and other other stuff. Um, and so uh, I've been over the last few years. I've had a number of different devices from a brand called Acara. That's A Q A R A. Acara is kind of like a it's like a, a Chinese company, and they're kind of like the cheapest HomeKit stuff seller. So generally, you need to buy one of their hubs um, at. Back when I first started with Acara, they only had one hub and it's very annoying. It was like a terrible design. You had to plug it into the wall. It didn't have Ethernet. It was just this, this giant wart that sat on your wall and, mm. and did not like it. Uh, but now they have much better ones. Um, you can buy one that's just like a black puck with an Ethernet that you can stick in your closet or under your shelf or whatever. Um, so that's improved. But um, Acara has, they, they, I think they're a huge brand in Asia. Um, they have a ton of different stuff. You can get their, you know, their, their in-wall smart switches and they have smart light bulbs and they have cameras and they have everything, basically everything you can imagine smart home wise. Um, and almost all of it is, uh, is, um, home compatible. Hmm. Um, but not, all, I know it's also a lot of it's very, very cheap. So for example, like I had, um, a bunch of like Acara, um, motion sensors and like similar ones from like more mainstream brands are pretty expensive. And these ones are like $12, um, like really cheap stuff and it works great. Um, and I found out that they have a lot of devices. So first of all, I guess I would just recommend Acara stuff. Like a lot of it's available on Amazon. You can just go on there and search for it. But they also have a lot of devices that you can get if you order them directly from China uh, hmm. that you can't get here for no apparent reason. And I bought five of this. I'm going to show Laura, but you guys will have to des- have to describe it for you. Actually, I don't have... You're seeing the box. So Laura, that was useless to you. Yeah, as I was well about to say... The, I, I was going to say great describe radio, great job, but also radio. it's a box. <laughs> it's a box. Um, Akara has something that they call an Apple. I don't know why. Apple? Like, Apple. like an O-P-P-L-E. Apple? O-P-P-L-E. But- yeah, hmm. like, like Apple, but with an O. It is a... Um, very versatile little, um, like wall switch kind of thing that you can like either stick or magnet or screw to a wall and it has six buttons on it. Okay. Each button can be tied into something that happens in your smart home via the home kit setup. And each button has a single press, a double press or a press and hold function. Oh, it's like a fancy remote control. that sticks on your wall. Exactly. And it not only does it stick on your wall, it has a little wall plate, but it's also the actual controller thing magnets into the wall plate. So if there's some reason that you want to take that little controller and walk across the room with it, you can still do that. It's a little wireless device. Um, and they're like 17 or $18 if you buy them directly from Akara's store on AliExpress. It's so much cheaper than it would be if it was actually available in the United States. <laughs> right. And so I put these things in every room and they've been fantastic because like I know I like smart home stuff. Um, and the first thing you think of when you think, oh, I'm going to smart homeify my stuff is like maybe I put a, like lights on a timer. Maybe I put a motion sensor. And if I want to control things, otherwise I'll, I'll talk into the air to a remote cylinder. You know, I'll talk to Alexa or Siri or whatever. And I do a lot of that. But um, I'm realizing there's a lot of benefit in having buttons places. You know, people who installed light switches, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, uh, they had the right idea in some ways. But being able to have something that has 
six buttons on it and really actually like 18 things you can program it to do. Um, that's awesome because like I have a button that turns on all the lights in this room, turns on all the lights in this room and the adjoining room, turns off all the lights in both of those rooms, dims them halfway. I have lights, the buttons that will turn on and off the Christmas tree, independent of all the other lights in the room, all that kind of stuff. Um, buttons that'll turn off all the lights in the house. Uh, and up in the, the upstairs, I have buttons on my little box thing that will do things like turn on the TV, the home theater receiver, set it to the Xbox input, dim the lights to 20%, shut off the lights in the next room. Well, you know, like that kind of thing. Like you can, you can program yeah. these like very complicated scenes and trigger them with like a, a button press and you have, you can put these buttons because they're cheap. You can put them everywhere. Um, and that has been awesome. So I would say like, I guess the recommendation part of this, uh, first of all, if you're doing a home kit setup, uh, take a look at the Akara stuff. It's really cheap and it's even cheaper if you order it from China. It comes like on seriously slow boat shipping, but it's very cheap and mm. quality is fine. Um, and uh, specifically the Apple made me reconsider uh, like the, you know, the, the joy of having physical controls and being able to put them exactly where it would be convenient to you is very nice. So it's a bit nerdy, but I would recommend folks check out the Akara Apple, which you can get on AliExpress for like 17 bucks shipped. I mean, Rick and me just talked about a medievalist video game. Um, mm, nerdy stuff. We were a nerd mode anyway. It's a different kind of nerd though. We didn't even talk about how nerdy the title is, by the way. Pentiment is such a specialty word. Uh, no, actually, we never got to that. What? What is? What is? I never got around to looking it up. What does the word pentiment mean? Yeah. So, um, pentiment is like um, Pompasset, which is also a book. I, I another thing. Uh, there's a book not, that's still not helping. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that that is a book that Jennifer Udden refer, kept talking about, and I was like, "You're saying a word, and I don't know what the word is." Um, it is uh, visual art when like a, a layer of paint chips off and there's something underneath that you see. Oh, so like it's when a canvas gets reused multiple times. Okay. That is, that is thematic because the game is definitely about there being sort of layers. There's a lot of stuff in the, in the game about like investigating, not just the present mystery, but also investigating the past of the town all the way down through its, uh, earlier, um, Roman and pagan histories. Um, and so that's, that's cool. This, this idea that like, you know, it's, it's a, it's an art term. It specifically applies to the kind of art that we'd be talking about here, but also it has that thematic element to it. That's a really good name. Yeah, I think it's Pentimento with an O at the end, but it, it, they probably didn't want it to sound Italian. Um, I don't know if it's, but um, that's what that word means. It's that like chipped paint, seeing something peeking through. Like um, also, what they do with the the text in here, like when they erase and rewrite hmm, stuff yeah, on top yeah. of it, like that's all the the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it's great, cool. great thematic yeah, title. Thank you for that, because I, I meant to see if I could look up that word, but I, I did a cursory Google search for the word pentiment, and all I got was this game. And so, yeah, thank you. Uh, well, now I guess it's time for us to talk our spoiler break. But before we do that, let's do our quick admin and outro. Where can you find us these stuff? Um, you can find, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. You can find our show on the internet at www.theshortgame.net. Uh, and you can find our show uh, on uh, Patreon. You can support the show for even just a dollar a month and you'll get immediate access to our Discord. I know everyone's fleeing Twitter. We'll 
mention the Twitters in a minute. We do still have one. Uh, it auto posts. I'm not there really. Um, but uh, if you are fleeing Twitter and you need a good place to hang, our Discord is a pretty good one. You can go to patreon.com slash the short game and support the show with even just a, a buck a month. And you'll get instant access to our Discord, uh, which is a good hang to talk about games. Um, you can also find, uh, oh, and if you support at the $5 level, I will send you some stickers. Um, and we would really appreciate that. Uh, let's see. You can find our show on Twitter at underscore short game. Uh, yes, I know Twitter is becoming weirder by the day, um, but our show is still there. Uh, I, on the other hand, am not there anymore. Kind of. I, I have an account and I will notice if you tag me there at Reagan K, um, but I have moved my posting over to Mastodon. So you can find me there at Reagan, R-A-Y-G-A-N at bird.rodeo. And uh, Laura, where can people find you? Uh, I am still on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. I was going to go on Hive, but they seem to have a data breach. So like, don't <laughs> use Hive. Don't, it's so, a nightmare. I know I should go on Astodon, but I just like haven't gotten around to it. So, and I honestly was kind of taking a Twitter break anyway, but you can still find me there because um, a lot of people are just tweeting into the void as the asteroid comes towards the server it's a weird know. it's a weird time for for social media i don't blame you for not jumping both feet into mastodon um i think it's the best one of the things but it's not going to replace twitter for everyone or uh, yeah. even for anyone it's not it's not like it's not quite the same thing it's just another good thing when twitter is a bad thing that said twitter made me super happy this week because Catherine van aradonk tweeted about pentiment and they were absolutely absurd and she was yelling at people who don't play games to play it and they were so great so i'll, I'll put it in the show notes but um while twitter still exists you should read the pentiment thread where someone with a literature and media studies double degree is losing their mind <laughs> that is the kind of thing that like that with twitter imploding and fracturing and splintering into um you know scattering to the winds um twitter was such a strange accident of history that we got such a critical mass of great thinkers and uh shit posters and athletes and and celebrities and weirdos and basically people of every every kind and stripe such a massive collection all on one platform a platform that really wasn't well suited to being that kind of thing, but it did its job anyway. And I will miss it. Um, but I, I think in its current form, it is intolerable to me. Um, the, uh, but yeah, I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to see anything like Twitter again. Um, I think what we're going to need to do is, is find our own little communities and maybe be on multiples for that kind of thing. You know, if you have, um, academic Twitter might go to one service and, you know, uh, sports Twitter might go to another and so on. Um, and many of them will probably just stay on Twitter, but, and, and deal with the fact that it is owned by somebody who is, um, rubbing shoulders with Nazis and, and making the site weirder and worse in all sorts of complicated ways. So, <sighs> is rough. It's but rough. I am glad I had one, like, if this is the last hurrah, like the Pentman thread was a nice, like, ah, yes, this is what I liked. It is a reminder of what we have lost or are mm -hmm. losing, I think. Anyway, I'm sorry to be a bummer about that. We are just ending the show. So I'll try to turn this around and say, 
Listeners, thank you once again for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. And here it is, your spoiler break. So... I can only really talk in depth about the first murder, but I think I investigated pretty well given my time, mostly because I completely ignored Lucky. I was just like, I don't want to worry about the stonemason. I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him either. I didn't do a good job investigating Lucky at all. I talked to him more after the fact. Yeah. So I only focused on the widow, the nuns, and um, the... uh, the prior, the head of the scriptorium. So, who would you like to hear about that I know of? I, I, oh. And I, well, I, I'll just tell you what I, what yeah. I, um, so I immediately plot? decided. So, I, I got the most evidence on the nun whose name is escaping me at the moment, Matilda. Um, Matilda, like it really seemed like maybe it was her, but I was like, I'm not going to accuse her. Like she, if she killed him, I don't know if she did, but if she killed him, and her boyfriend uh, was like, "Don't turn her in," <laughs> I was yeah. like, "Hmm." <laughs> yeah, and and she was uh like if 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 she did it, she was getting revenge for a terrible wrong done to her by this man. Mm-hmm. And he probably deserved it. And so, you know, fuck that. I'm not going to I'm not going to turn her in. Um and I had the second most evidence on who um the uh I I ended up uh the the abbot. I ended up going mm. against him. Yeah. Like turning him in for it. Did you um, get him executed? Yes, I did. I did too. Um, yeah. And I, I felt I, bad because I was pretty sure he was innocent. I was too. Like, that was the strangest thing about this. Was like, I, I was. I thought I all of them were single, by the time I finished. Single person. Yeah. I don't think there was a single person in that that I was like sure did it or even sure deserved to go to, to get the rap for it. The widow didn't care whether she lived or died, but was clearly like, if. If I didn't think Brother Pierre could have done it, like she I couldn't, wasn't she was turn her in either. Like no, I, I was, was not clearly a sad wronged. widow. Yeah, um, her whole deal also was like, she clearly didn't do it. She just didn't right. care if she died. Yeah, bummer. Was, was, I, yeah, I wasn't going to turn her in for it. That didn't seem right. But you know, the the abbot just was. He was the only asshole. So he didn't have the most. Uh, I mean, they were. So everyone was sort of an asshole. But. Did you do the like? puzzle wheel or the library i did the puzzle wheel thing okay i think yeah the code right, now, it's now been it's now been like almost a week since i did that murder so i'm i'm struggling to <laughs> since you didn't the do the murder you investigated what, that reagan yes. is not the murder everybody no. yeah I'm, my my headcanon on this is that um none of those people did it and we'll just never know who it was yeah um, basically um i i think i know I have a theory of who did it, but I fear it might be actually like if I'm correct, it might actually be a spoiler for later in the game. So I'm hesitant to say it on the podcast, mm. but I want to to shoot my shot. But I also don't want to spoil people. Uh, um, hit, hit me up after, but we'll leave that out of the episode. Yeah. Um, I, I do. Uh, there was if you went down in the crypts, and this was just mm-hmm. again, um, and you pressed a button on one of the statues like if you took Mm -hmm. a key out of the christ statue it like pushed back and you found a secret passageway into the library yeah um and then you could uh not only see uh the the sun and the moon chart which i didn't need because i was heaven and earth so i didn't need the element chart Mm -hmm. but like that's where you could get that and if you went to the second floor you could 
like eventually you got to the top and you got to the nuns and you found out Matilda was missing for the time period. That's yeah. That's where I got the, so I had the most evidence against her and it was um, all of that. I, that. I'm pretty sure I fully investigated her. And then you line. saw the, the, the two monks doing it, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, I'm sorry. I thought you said you didn't do the library, but I just, Oh no, no, no. I totally did the library. I also, um, uh, I don't know if you're Andreas uh, dallied with a nun, but <laughs> I said no when she got super pissed, and uh, then she yelled that I had taken advantage of her, and the nun's like, "You're an inveterate liar," um, and she's she like, "I'm gonna so remember this." I was like, "Oh no, this is gonna count me in Act Two. <laughs> I loved her. I, I think she was a great character, um, but yeah, um, yeah, she shows back up in Act Two, and, and she's great. Yeah, um, th- there's definitely like a lot of. Um, uh, branching for this. One of the things I, I like best about it is because it does have these long time skips. Um, you do see uh, long-term consequences for your decisions as well as just like this person does or doesn't like you. Mm. Um, and also you get like a, a long view history of the town, you know, like by the, by the third act events from the first act are already being forgotten by, by people in the town. And it's a struggle to investigate what happened only 19 years ago because not everybody can read and write. And, you know, there's other, um, and honestly, at the time, there's not enough time. I mean, I managed to find three murder weapons, I think three I motives two, and yeah, I, I'm trying there to was what the Abbott's murder weapon was. Um, if you, did you uncover the grave? Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was the silver rod. The yeah, silver rod. The silver rod. Um, that's right. Had blood on it. The shovel had blood on it. And then there was a broken tool with blood on it. And I don't the, think I found the broken tool. I found the, the widow's the, the shovel. Shack. Just notes everywhere, too. Just like purple yeah, notes. Everyone, uh, everyone everybody. got one of those notes. Um, so I'm still at a point where I'm still kind of struggling to to find out like the um I, I don't want to spoil anything too badly for you, but I, I will I'm um the the third act is a really big swerve. Um so something really really dramatic changes at the end of the second act and there's a long time skip of like 18 or 19 years. Mm-hmm. Um and the third act you're playing as Magdalene, the young daughter of the Druckers. Oh awesome. Uh-huh. And who's who's then like 19 or 20. Um and a totally different thing. And uh, at least the amount of it that I've played so far, and I'm pretty well into it, you're not in, you're, you're investigating an attempted murder, but not an actual murder. Mm. Um, and mostly you're using the same investigation mechanics to investigate the history of the town. She's working on a, uh, on a mural illustrating the history of Tansing. Mm. And part of that is she has to like go talk to old people and find books and do other stuff using the same investigation mechanics, but just to try to get a better picture of the history of the town, um, which I think is, is so cool. Cause like it's, it's turned like it, the, the whole game has this, this sort of um, theme of like, this place is layer upon layer you know, there's mysteries, but there's also it's the like Roman the ruins of the on top of the meadow with the abbey behind it, and then you uh-huh, get a new the, building in the second act, and yeah. and everything's literally on top of Roman ruins, and the Roman ruins are on top of like um, pagan, uh, like uh, you know, folk beliefs and stuff. Like there's there's a lot and, of that kind of theme here, and like so she's trying to kind of uncover the history of the town in this very uh, very cool way. I, I think it's it's just it's really cool. I mean, even in Act One, a couple things that come to mind are the the day of the flood. The uh, Father Thomas 
is talking about how you can't repair part of the church foundation because it might affect the dead bodies buried underneath it. And um, the Baron is bringing a book about the town's history that's going to expose probably the saint is a sham. (laughs) Like all of these things are happening um, on top of each other. Um, And it's a story told in asides where like, 90% 90% of the conversation is about this, and then there's three or four asides. And if you can pick up enough of those, it it creates a storyline, which I, I really treasure that kind of writing. Yeah, it's very dense. This is the kind of game that if I had time, I would probably enjoy a second playthrough with different, because I'd be able to focus on different um, plot lines that I, I missed <laughs> details of. I would find out what happened to Lucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I'm not sure I have much else to share that I think, you know, we, we are in spoiler territory, but like, also this is a mystery game. Like we're, we're talking about some spoiler stuff, but I don't want to like fully lay it all on the table for folks who are potentially going to play it. Yeah. Um, I think this might be one that um, I, maybe when we finish it, we'll do an extra Patreon bonus where we talk about the second act and the murder and the, and the, the final the, one. Yeah. Maybe that'd be fun. I, I just adore this game. And I mean, thanks again, Laura, for, for giving me the nudge. I, 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 I was almost not interested in it at first. And I think it was because I was initially confusing it with a couple of other games that have used um, medieval imagery, medieval, illuminated yeah. manuscripts, I'm and they have not like, been great um, games. Procession to Calvary, which is another Game Pass game. As which well. is silly. Yeah. And when I first saw it, that was this, Monty Python y. That was exactly what I thought. Like I thought, like you know, when I when I see things drawn in this style, I kind my brain goes to like the old Monty Python bits, the like the animated um, paper cut um, things where they'd have like you know God farting or whatever. And um, I don't know, I'm kind of over that style of humor right now. Um, maybe I guess uh, you know, check back in with me the next time I laugh at a god farting joke or whatever but something about that just like it didn't it didn't appeal to me but like this isn't that at all but it's also not hyper serious it's you know it's a murder mystery but it's like it's you know murder mysteries are fun and i don't know it's not what i expected at all um you didn't expect to holler about martin luther (laughs) no i didn't expect to be like wrapped and you know in paying deep attention to a weird drifter outside the town sharing his thoughts on the nature of transubstantiation or and whatever. socrates it was i loved the, the robinie drifter talking to you about random stuff it was great yeah, yeah. I, it, it's it's really cool it's a really great window into uh you know a, a world that we don't see depicted in media very often and uh the lives of, of people and and you can also just so clearly tell that this is the game that this director has been wanting to make like since he graduated from whatever master's program in medieval whatever he probably did uh it's awesome it Um, makes me want to go watch Catherine called birdie so (laughs) mm. i i I saw that it's really good well great yeah it was was really cute Um, good so yeah loved it um Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. We're going to leave you here. Join us next week for another episode. We don't know what it's about yet, but we're going to be figuring it out soon. And uh, thanks. Bye. Bye.